Hello, you feathered custard doves with your sticky confectionery wings. What's going on? Hold on, I'm getting texts already and it's only the start of the fucking podcast. Alright, welcome to episode 87 of the Blind Boy podcast. Um, This week is a very intense week for me. I'm rounding up and finishing my book. Uh, I'm out of the country also. Um, So I'm going to have a live podcast for you this week. But it's a live... I recorded it about six months ago. And I've been wanting to put this one out for ages. But I promised I wouldn't. I promised I was going to hold on to it for a specific date and then put it out. Fantastic feedback for last week's podcast. It was about biodiversity and the climate and, you know, direct action that we can do. So I got a great response online, in particular to the call for action for people to make the fucking seed bombs with wildflower. You know, getting Irish wildflower and making little bombs out of clay and compost and wild Irish flower and making these little balls and throwing them into vacant lots or someone's unkempt garden or ghost estates. A lot of people sending me photographs of themselves making seed bombs and spreading wildflower around Ireland. I encourage you, do this. It will help the bees. Um, so anyway, this week's podcast, it's a live podcast from Vicker Street that I recorded about six months ago with Emma Dabbery, who is... She's an academic, right? And she specialises... An academic who specialises on, on issues of race. She teaches African study, African history. And what I enjoyed most about Emma is that... Yes, she's an academic, but she communicates academia through storytelling. Um, she has a good ability to communicate knowledge in such a way that it's it's not... It doesn't exclude you in the way that academia does. Because academic stuff sometimes can just feel highfalutin. But Emma has that rare ability to just make it really relatable and interesting. And you're learning, but you want to hear what happens next. So we had a great fucking chat in Vicar Street. The reason I'm putting it out now is... At the start of this month, Emma released her book which was called Don't Touch My Hair, which is it's a history of African hair and African hairstyles. And I said to Emma, look, you're going to put it out at the start of May. I guarantee you there'll be loads of press. So I'll put this out in June, essentially, because by that time the press will have calmed down and you'll get kind of a second leg. To be honest, she doesn't even fucking need it. The book came out at the start of May and it immediately went to the top of the Amazon bestseller. The fucking Guardian called it groundbreaking. And her book is may possibly be remembered next year as one of the best books of 2019. The, res- the critical reception to it is fucking huge all over the world. So fair fucking play to you, Emma. Um, it's a class book. Go out and get it. It's called Don't Touch My Hair. And... The subject of this podcast is going to be about most of the things that Emma wrote about in that book. About Africa, African culture, um, different the difference between different African culture and the significance of hair and music within African culture. So, 
give it a listen and you will enjoy. Before I go into it, we'll do a little ocarina pause. What are we? Four minutes in? We can chance a fucking ocarina pause at four minutes, can't we? Alright. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That was the Ocarina pause. You might have heard an advert for something. This podcast is sponsored by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Do you enjoy the podcast? If you do, consider becoming a patron. A patron. Patreon.com forward slash the blind buy podcast. If you like the podcast, you can support it by giving me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. Alright? Um that makes a massive difference to my life. It what it's what keeps me doing the podcast every fucking week. To be honest, like I shouldn't even be putting out a podcast this week or next week because I'm too busy for it. But because of the patrons, it's like I'm not letting you down. You're getting a podcast every fucking week regardless of my personal circumstances or what my workload is so you can thank the patrons for why there is a podcast this week so thank you so without further ado here is my live podcast with emma dabbery in vicar street and it's great crack and it's very very interesting and it was a pleasure for me to learn a bunch of stuff that i never knew anything about so, yart. Um, what's the crack, Emma? How are you getting on? Yeah, I'm grand. Yeah. Was, was that the right introduction? You are an academic who specialises in issues of race. I think that was it in a nutshell. Okay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, we could say a bit more, but I'm sure that will reveal itself over yeah. the course of the evening. Um, so, you've just written a book I have. called uh, Don't Touch My Hair. Is that funny? And Is the title funny? <laughs> what, what, like, with the questions that I ask, I ask the internet for the questions, right? Mm-hmm. So in order to introduce this book, I'm going to ask a particularly ignorant question that I was asked. Oh, God. On the internet. <laughs> now, I don't know... My heart's if, sinking. ...if he was being genuinely ignorant or mean, but... What did he say? Sometimes I, I feel like I don't really care about intention. It's just like, regardless of what his intention was, um, it might still be, the question might be exhausting. But let's hear it anyway. Um, do you know what? I should have planned this better because I didn't, know, <laughs> I didn't number my questions. <laughs> Bollocks, where is it? Was, was, he quest, was, he, was he questioning the title? Like the veracity of the claim? The gist of it was, right? <laughs> 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 What 
Why did she call her book Don't Touch My Hair? That seems really strange. Why would someone go around touching people's hair? Like, I can understand it would happen, but, like, why would you write a book about it? I mean, okay, yeah, that, 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 that is a fair enough question. Oh, wow, this is loud. Um, so I will say the, the title is a, a phrase that a lot of black women will be familiar with because it's something that they will, if they, especially if they've grown up in a white environment, the phenomenon of the unwarranted, unauthorized hair touching is probably something that they've experienced. And I guess the phrase was popularized... Um, by Solange Knowles when she, she has a song called Don't Touch My Hair. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a real thing. Um, I guess if you're somebody that has no experience of such a thing, it may seem odd yeah. because it, it, it is odd. Um, it is a, a strange thing to do to somebody. But I think, I think I saw that little exchange on Twitter. And I think the question itself is kind of innocent enough but I think then when people kind of went on to say, you know, this is like a thing, this happens. He was just like, no, 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 it sounds very unlikely, like I don't believe it. So I think w when people, especially like when, when black people tell you kind of en masse that they're experiencing something, just because you have no direct experience of it yourself, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or that it doesn't happen. So, yeah. Um, and like... A phrase like don't touch my hair, like it's one of those things, it triggers the internet. Everything triggers the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but it's people, like we were raised, racism is basically how, we, how I was raised. Don't openly hate black people and don't use the N-word. And that was it. And if you don't do that, you're not a racist. Yeah, right? That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but <laughs> if only it were that simple. <laughs> the hair touching thing is, is it fair to call that a microaggression? Ah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I'm a generation that like terms like microaggression uh, d don't necessarily like come really easily to me. Um, and I don't even know if it's micro like, but um, I will say that like growing up, it was like a really, it was a really frequent occurrence in my life. Um, I didn't know that it happened to other people. I didn't yeah. th know it was like an international kind of global phenomenon. And it was only, um, I guess, when these conversations started, well, when I kind of left Ireland and met other black people. So the Ireland I grew up in was like in the 80s and 90s. And it was very, it's very different to now. Like they're just, especially in the early 90s, like kind of migration hadn't started in the way you, you it's kind of happened subsequently. Grown up in Rialto, wasn't it? I grew up in Rialto, yeah. yeah. And um, I like if I saw another black person, like it often felt like like something of an event. Like it just wasn't like we, it just wasn't typical. Um, so it was only when I left Ireland, kind of started to meet more black people, and then also with conversations that have been happening on the internet, I saw that this thing that I thought that was a really unique experience of mine has absolutely has actually happened to like millions of girls. Not just girls, actually, it happens to men as well, and like particularly if they have locks, if they yeah. if they have like if they have locks, that seems to seems to attract um, that kind of attention. But yeah, it happens. It happens a lot, and. Um, so when I was little, I would literally just have people, um, they wouldn't even like look really at me or talk to me. They'd literally just be like, Jesus, look at her hair. And they'd come over and they'd touch my hair and kind of talk about it like amongst themselves. So it was quite like disorienting. Um, and how do you feel like, um, 
what has the internet done for those type of conversations? Like, to have things like that spoken about, and do you think the internet has created this conversation, or was this something that was already happening in smaller communities, and now all of a sudden everyone can talk about it? It's definitely something that, that's, that's already happening, but I guess the internet provided that kind of, that space. Um, or, and that, um, I guess, like access um, for people who wouldn't have been able to be in communication with each other previously to kind of connect over shared experiences um, and across kind of like geographical spaces and stuff. And I guess when there's kind of a groundswell of those conversations and you start to see like the numbers of people who've experienced the same time, the same type of thing as you, I guess the kind of mainstream starts to pay attention and they're like, oh, wow, this is a thing. Like it's happening to a lot of people. Um, yeah. And how do you feel? Because this is the thing we were talking about now. Which, when you write a book, mm -hmm. you don't get to choose the name of your book. Yeah, so I didn't choose the title. How do you feel about the title of the book? And does it correctly reflect what's on the inside? Yeah, an interesting question. So I'm, I'm happy with the title. Um, and I think it's good... It's good to have, like, a populist title that a lot of people can, like, immediately identify with. Um, and I guess that makes other people... Maybe it's, I don't know if it's a sensationalist title, but it's like a recognizable title and it's like a populist title. It's not the one I came up with. I came up with a far more staid. What was it? What was it? A history of hair. So, <laughs> <laughs> But the abstract of the book is taking African, is it deconstructing African ha hairstyles as a way to decolonize? Um, yeah, okay. So it, the Can book you talk about that? The, the, the African hair and decolonization? Wow, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's what I want to hear about. <laughs> okay, that's, it's, it's quite complicated, but let me, let me, let me try and, like, kind of, let me try and explain that. Okay, so, basically, I teach African studies um, and African history. It can, what, one of the many things that was used to justify, first of all, like the enslavement of millions of Africans, um, and subsequently, after slavery was abolished, the colonization of the continent, um, was that these people aren't really people. They're not, they're not fully human. So not only is this um, kind of, not only is their, is their colonization um, kind of not a problem but it's actually it's it's a benefit to them we're bringing like the light of civilization to the dark continent and they should be grateful in fact that this is happening um lots of different so if you think about the idea this is going to be kind of a long and meandering answer it's a podcast it's grand. <laughs> great <laughs> and you did tell me to be as nerdy as possible mm. so it might it might go deep um so Race, people often say, people have started to say, and I think this has been facilitated by the internet, um, phrases from sociology um, being kind of used um, in a populist way yeah. from people who aren't academics, this idea that race is a social construct. Um, so people kind of repeat this mantra, but I don't know if they really know what it means. And a lot of people's reactions to things about race would suggest to me that, that even though they're saying race is a social construct, they do still actually believe it's a biological reality. 
but lots of the ideas and stereotypes, given that race is a social construct, lots of the ideas and stereotypes that we believe about blackness were invented when this concept of black people was invented. And equally with this idea of there being black. So it's not to say that um, people with darker skin didn't exist, that they were invented. There were always people that had like darker mm -hmm. skin, dark brown skin. But the idea that they were a unified race and that they had particular racial characteristics that they all shared in common is a relatively recent socially engineered idea. Mm -hmm. Similarly with white people, there was no kind of pan-white identity, identity mm -hmm. before the 1600s. People across Europe wouldn't have seen themselves or in America, or well, America was kind of was being discovered at this point, but they wouldn't have had this idea of themselves as white and there being kind of meaning encoded into that and there being a shared identity by virtue of their lack mm -hmm. of melanin, their complexion. Um, so when these things, when these ideas were invented, blackness was associated with all of these really negative characteristics, whiteness was associated with good and virtuous, good and virtuous ones. Um, one of the things um, that you see happening in Africa in this part, as part of this process of dehumanization of the black subject is the idea that um, these people don't actually have any history. They don't have, they don't have, they don't have monuments. They don't have um, the written word. There's no evidence of their civilization. They're uncivilized. They're not fully human. Um, Africa does have huge monuments. They were often... Um, they were often accredited to being created by other people. It wasn't yeah. believed they could be created by Africans. Um, it also has lots of like written languages, but that's kind of regardless of that. Um, lots of the lots of the cultures were primarily oral. So my father is Yoruba, which is one of the biggest kind of ethnic groups in um, in Nigeria, and there's a big Yoruba population in in Ireland. That's one of the groups that's migrated here. So the Yoruba was a primarily oral culture, so there's not lots of written texts. But within oral cultures, there are lots of other languages. Mm -hmm. So there are, so there's a drum called the Bata drum. Yoruba is a tonal, this, I'm getting, this is relating to hair. It's just, I'm just kind of giving you like some, a lot of background. Um, so uh, there's, a, there's a drum called the Bata drum. As I said, Yoruba is a tonal language. The Bata drum mimics the tonality of Yoruba. So the drum speaks, it's a talking drum. So somebody that can... And how old is this? Like, how old is that, this drum? It goes back centuries. Okay. I don't know when it dates from, but it's like a, a, a major kind of, um, a major facet of Yoruba and culture. Do you know, um, you listened to the podcast I did about the history of hip-hop. I did, I absolutely loved it. Thank you. I spoke about the, the, the griots. Yeah. Is that the same type of carry-on? The, the griots, the, the, they were talking... What was it? Talking poets, but they had a drum beat to it, and this yeah. you can trace rap to this. So the griots are um, are Mende, um, so uh, West Africa as well, but like Senegal, Mali, all, all kind of they they travelled through a lot of um, through a lot of West Africa, although not not Nigeria. But yes, they would be part of a similar tra similar tradition. The griots um, are these repositories of like oral oral histories yeah so they know um lots of epic tales that are like very long and involved like sundiata which is maybe comparable to like um homer and and the uh, the odyssey yeah um and they know like the lineages of families and they basically have this 
they have this like embodied knowledge that they've memorized that goes back hundreds and hundreds, possibly like thousands of years. So they retain all that in their heads. Um, so bata would be in those kind of oral traditions, but it's specifically this drum. But the drum speaks, the drum can communicate. And I think like when the British went to, Ni well, it wasn't called Nigeria, they invented the territory yeah. and named it Nigeria. But when they went to this place that was going to become Nigeria, and they said, oh, these people are illiterate and they don't have, they don't have uh, written language. The same argument could be made that those that they were illiterate, they couldn't decipher or decode the drum. But anyway, there, there are all these other languages. Hair is one of these, is one of these visual is a visual language, and there are so many messages and there's so much information encoded into traditional um, African braided hairstyles. And something that I had noticed was whenever I spoke about hair um, yeah. in kind of like a public in a public forum or wrote about it journalistically, there'd be like so much support. But there would also be people who were like, just fucking like, in, like enraged. Yeah. And they were just like, what is this shite? It's only hair. And I wanted with the book to show that it's not only hair. Like it's so much more than, it's so much more than just this matter that grows from our heads. And that it, it is imbued with all of this, all of this information and all of this symbolism and all of this history. Um, so to take a group of people that were um, told that they had no history and that all of this mythology was created around them, that they had no history and therefore their very humanity was in question, I wanted to look at one of their non-written forms of, um, of language and use that to tell another story of, to tell African history through, specifically Nigerian, through the hairstyles, and to talk about contemporary issues through the hairstyles. And like, can you give specific examples? Because even that sounds mad to me, like, you know what I mean? It does, like, the, the idea that hair is being used as a form of communication and language. Mm -hmm. Can you give like specific examples, like? Yeah. And does so that, is that present in other cultures? Yeah, so this is something that would be like generalizable throughout the continent, like throughout Africa. I just know that with Africa, people have a tendency, as I'm doing now, to just be like, oh, Africa, as though it's not this like huge, huge and like extremely diverse place. Like the, so, the mayor of Limerick was trying to be nice and said that uh, we should have street signs in African. <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to be sound. Do you know what I mean? I, 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 appreciate the, um, I appreciate the effort. That was actually like quite an enduring question when I was growing up. Can you speak African, Emma? And I was just like, oh, like, no. I can't. Like, which, which one of the like, thousands of languages? Even in Nigeria, there's like over 150 different and languages. The thing as well with the map, I, I, do you know that thing with the map? The way the map was drawn yeah. makes Europe look way bigger, but like Africa in reality is gigantic. Like even R Russia's actually tiny. Really? Yeah, because you know the way you look at the map and you look at Russia and you go, fuck that, I'm not fucking with them. <laughs> <laughs> Russia's actually not that big. It's just whatever way the map is wrapped, Russia looks huge, Africa looks small, and Africa's actually like way bigger than Russia, way bigger than Europe. Yeah, so it, yeah, the way Africa is represented, that's a, that's a really good point. Like it's all, and, and you say you don't want to fuck at Russia because it look, looks big and like, threatening not, yeah. and imposing. So it's all ideological. Like a lot of, a lot of this stuff isn't like fact. But it's, um, it's, it, it's, it's ideology and it's mythology often, even though it's presented as history and it's pre presented as objective truth. Um, so what was your question again? African? <laughs> no, specific examples, we say, oh. to, to try and... 
to understand yeah, like yeah, yeah. So hair meaning this, one this thing. This is like a sample of the chapter um, of the first chapter of my book, but there's a picture there um, which is of me um, with see that hairstyle. It's I'll called, describe it to the audience. Yeah, please do. <laughs> so, actually, I'm not going to describe African hair because I'll end up being racist. <laughs> Will you do it? I, Hand it to the white lad there. No, 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 no. Who knows no, no. nothing? <laughs> And describe it. I guarantee you won't be racist. I would like, I'd actually like to hear your description of it. Um, you should do it. It'll be full. It, it, to, okay, honestly, it, it, to me it just looks like cornrows and a bun at the end. <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah, that's, that's not too far from the truth. Okay, so um, that's called shuku, and that was um, a hairstyle that was... So, okay, so when you say corners, that's really interesting because a lot of the traditional um, Yoruba hairstyles are variations of, of cornrows. So the typical cornrow that most people would know that's just like running back is called kolesi in mm -hmm. Yoruba, which means without legs because um, Afro hair, the way Afro hair curls, when you um, finish the braid, mm -hmm. it like by its own volition just turns into this like little curl there. And that gives the name of the whole hairstyle, which is without legs, which is like a snail, because they think that looks like a snail. Um, so that one is Shaku, and that was the hairstyle of the, the king of the Yoruba, who's called the Oba, he still, he still is. And his wives were the only people that could wear that hairstyle. So okay. that's like a queen's hairstyle, and then identified them as being married to the Oba. But then it just became popularized, and now anyone, even one such as myself, okay. can dare to wear it. Um, what would it have meant at the time if you were not one of the queens and you had a lash at that haircut? Oh, God. Would I, that have had consequences? It probably would have had consequences because I know that, like, Yoruba society is... Um, so, like, lots of African societies you look at are very, like, egalitarian. This is the, the, the pre-colonial ones. Very egalitarian, very equal. Yoruba isn't really one of those ones. It's actually, like, very hierarchical and stratified. And I think to have dared to wear the hairstyle of the queen probably wouldn't have been looked upon, wouldn't have been looked upon kindly. Um, but like, yeah, each, each of the hairstyles just has a really specific meaning. So you can tell about the person's status. Um, you can tell their background. You could maybe even tell, know about like their aspirations, like what their, what their marital status. You can just tell like lots of different stuff via, via, via the hairstyles. Um, so yeah. Oh, another thing Go on. about hair is people think that like, so this whole conversation around natural hair at the moment yeah. and um, all of these women, including myself, who stopped chemically relaxing our hair, which is like a really, I always find the word relaxer like so deeply misleading and a really mm -hmm. interesting choice because it's this really innocuous, gentle sounding process for some, sorry, innocuous, gentle sounding word for something that's actually quite like a brutal process. That's like mm -hmm. really, really bad for you. Like the chemicals in relaxer are related to like cancer and fibroids, fertility and problems, all of this I'm stuff. I'm not sure what relaxer is. I, um, the one thing, am I right in thinking, do you know what Spike Lee's film Malcolm X? I know it well. Do you know at the start? Yes. He's showing Malcolm and he's bleaching his hair in the toilet. And like he's, he's relaxing his hair. Is that what that is? Yeah. That's exactly what's happening. But they call it conking in that. Yeah. Because um, that's, 
so it, yeah, there's different words that are used, but when men did it in that period in, in Harlem, when Malcolm X is coming up, um, it was known as conking. Um, but yeah, now it is uh, called relaxing. Um, so it's straightening your hair, and it's like the reverse of a, it's like a straight perm, like the reverse of like a curly perm. But um, people in their droves have stopped doing it, like over the past ten years, because I guess the we always knew about the health risks, mm-hmm. but I guess the pressure of assimilation was like so much mm-hmm. that you didn't care. Like for me, I just wanted to look normal. I just wanted to fit in. I didn't want anything that kind of like further like othered me, like my hair. And you don't want people touching your hair, so relaxing is a good way around it. I didn't want people touching my hair, exactly, a form of, a form of protection. Um, so with all, anyway... relaxer sales have absolutely slumped and um, it's gone from something that kind of most black women did to something like less than half do. But um, with that has been the, the, the development of the natural hair movement. So women kind of just wearing, like showcasing their natural textures. Um, but within that, there's this idea that like, I even had someone querying, questioning me the other day and she was just like, but you can't say that you're a natural because this isn't natural. There's like an intervention. Mm-hmm. You have extensions, you have braids. And so I was explaining that Interventionist like, hair. What, a, what an <laughs> awful insult. <laughs> Fuck off with your interventionist hair. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but like, yeah, the idea that this hasn't just like grown from my head naturally. Um, so I was pointing out that um, traditionally in Africa, West Africa, the Yoruba, a woman would never have Afro hair, like a man, you would never just have your hair out. So the idea that you're wearing, that you have an Afro is like a very, it's, it's, it's a, obviously a black hairstyle, that's the way our hairstyle grows, but it's a very like Western black response to racism. To just have an Afro is like a defiant kind of, yeah. you're telling me my hair, you're telling me that my hair texture is like, it's stigmatized and it's ugly. I'm going to wear it like kind of as big and visibly as possible. But that's not something you would traditionally see in Africa. It would always, always be braided, always be braided. And to have it not braided was seen as like, actually the hairstyle, the name for dreadlocks in Yoruba is were irun, which means like insane person's hair. Yeah. Because it was like, like literally, because it was pres- only somebody with like mental health issues would allow their hair to become yeah. unkempt. Yeah. Uh, that's, that was what was traditionally kind of understood. Um, and one thing as well that I've noticed that the hair conversation has started is white Americans scrambling to the history books of either Ireland or Scandinavia oh to try and prove that dreadlocks come from Mayo. <laughs> or, or, do you know what I mean? Which, you, you know, I, I'm like, isn't it, you know, that's a good thing. You're looking at history, but you're doing it to be pricks. <laughs> How do you feel about some of that? Like, yeah, the idea that it's like, it's like a Viking hairstyle. Yeah. And like, yeah, this is a load of bollocks, like, basically, because, like, that's not, like... They're, they don't have, like, when there's, like, a mood board and, like, there's, there's some sort of photo shoot and they're going to, like, appropriate, like, a black hairstyle or do, like, faux locks. They don't have a picture of a Viking up there. They have a picture of, like, a raster or something. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. Or, or some, somebody, from, somebody from the Caribbean. So, yeah, that's just, yeah. Like, yeah. rubbish. No. Very good. <laughs> um, how much of, we'll say, the, the language of hair, right, in Africa... How much of that made its way across to America and was preserved or was it forgotten? The language hasn't remained. So I will have um, like a lot of people of African descent, but who are from the diaspora. Who, so yeah. who are from the Caribbean or from, the, or from America. And they'll have like a, a traditional braided hairstyle. So the hairstyles were preserved, but the names of them mm-hmm. um, were not lost 
more so like categorically, like very purposefully lost because people were not allowed to speak their languages kind of like yeah. on pain of like severe punishment. Um, so people wouldn't necessarily like have the African terms but they would still have the hairstyles. And so when I tell people, when I tell like, when I tell somebody like what their hairstyle is with the traditional Yoruba name, people are often like really touched by that and really interested because mm -hmm. that's just not something, that's something that's kind of been denied, yeah. denied to them. So yeah, that's quite a nice and exchange. Is there like, is there a movement of Ameri in America where people are deliberately trying to find what did my hair mean? I don't know if they're trying to find what did my hair mean, but they're really like engaging with braided hairstyles again and creating like new meaning in them. Okay, and yeah. there's like, I think things are kind of, um, so an idea that it's like grounded in the past, but I guess yeah. like creating, like uh, modifying it to like suit the kind of, to suit the present day. But actually something really fascinating to me and I hope to others that I looked at in the book was the last chapter, um, looks because a lot of the conversations about hair just um it's great that we're having them but they seem to just kind of go now where it's just like don't touch my hair and the kind of politics of black hair yeah. and there's, there's actually like a lot more that the hair can tell us so the last chapter is called i don't know what it's called um it's called um, <laughs> <laughs> ancient futures maths mapping braiding and encoding so I'm looking at the relationship between braided hairstyles and african like mathematical traditions and um and also how braided hairstyles were used as maps. So there's a place called, um, I don't speak Spanish, so this is gonna be a disgusting attempt, but uh, the, oh God, the Palenque San Basilo is horrible, but it's something like that, an approximation of it. And it's a town in Colombia that um, it's the first free town, it's the first free settlement in the mm -hmm. Americas. So the people there, won their freedom from the Spanish in the yeah. 1600s. Um, so not only is it the first kind of like post kind of post European colonialism in the new world, it's the first free town. Not only that, but it also, they were also, they were also black people. So it's founded by escaped slaves. So they had this intelligence network that was allowing them to escape to these kind of marshy swamplands where they built this town. Um, and there was lots of different elements to the intelligence network, but something that was really central in it was, again, hair being like a, a language, were these maps that were braided into people's hair. So they would communicate. Um, do you know the Underground Railroad? Yeah. So it's kind of like a comparable thing to that, except rather than being secretive, it's like hiding in plain sight. So they would literally communicate like where they were gonna meet, um, how many slaves, how many enslaved people were gonna travel that day, um, what direction to take, all of this stuff is communicated through hairstyles. And I have photographs of some of those hairstyles, obviously not photographs from the 1600s, yeah. but um, the, those hairstyles are still popular in this place, the Palenque today. And it's so, the last place the Spanish are gonna be looking. <laughs> it is, like. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so lots of kind of ingenious um, things done, done, it's a lot more than just, than just hair. Um, you're living in the UK and you have been living in the UK for a good while. Yeah. And you have a son, I believe, who's in the UK education system. Is this he true? Is. How do you feel about how the Brits teach colonialism? Because... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great question. Um, I mean, they, they don't teach it. 
the, what, do you know what I heard of someone on Twitter? <laughs> the only time the Brits talk about colonialism is when they're talking about how bad the Spanish or French were. I mean, yes, there, there, there's often great gusto in yeah. how they talk about like, how brutal Belgian colonialism was. And yeah. I was. I'm just like, wow, the level of cognitive dissonance but here. Like. Even there with that, because I, I was thinking, do you know the way uh, corporations are trying to co-opt social justice, right? Yeah. So even with Nike and Colin Kaepernick, yeah. but then you look at Nike's record of sweatshops and things like that, and yes. you're going, what the fuck are you doing, lads? Do you think we're thick? But then I was thinking back to... But people don't... You say, what, what are you doing? Do you think we're thick? People don't really seem to question it, though. Like, no. there's the odd fringe person questioning it, but, like, the, the, most people are just like, oh, yeah, isn't this great? It's Nike. They're pricks. Like, seriously. Oh, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, no, my no. God. The thi- no, but, like... The, uh, there you go. I'm part of the system. That's they were only 40 quid in Heaton's, man. But that's one of the things I hate so much about capitalism is that like it makes us all complicit in it. Like I know you've spoken about this as well, but something I talk about I talk about too. Like look at our phones. Do you the know phones what I mean? and, and the coal tan. The the reason I was talking about Nike, don't buy them, is I was thinking about the way that we say corporations use now social justice to appear virtuous to sell us more stuff. Woke. Woke. I was thinking back to. Roger Casement was given his knighthood because he exposed what King Leopold was doing in Leopoldville at the time. Mm-hmm. And the Brits gave him a knighthood for going, look how bad the Belgians are. Yeah. But they were doing the same shit. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. The, yeah. the, 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 the British Empire were kind of walkwashing, in a sense, by going, look at Casement, the father of human rights, for pointing out what the Belgians are doing, the same shit that we're doing, but he's not talking about us. But I guess with them, there's more of like a veneer of like gentlemanliness about it, like yeah. to, their, to, to their minds. They're like, oh, this isn't just going to... I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they're, they are much of a muchness. And for the Belgians, it's like one country. Granted, the Congo is absolutely vast and the yeah. destruction and devastation they've wrought is just is still unfolding. I mean, well, all that's of the phones, stuff, the, the, yeah. all the minerals from the phones, it's happening in the Congo. Like. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but back to the question. Yeah, so they don't teach it. The only reason I know what I know is because, well, obviously, growing up in Ireland, you have an awareness of colonialism. Um, uh, How did you feel we taught it? Do you think with, is our, our education, is it, is it too hard on the Brits? <laughs> Sorry for any British people. <laughs> they can handle it. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, so for me, it, it wasn't just what you learned in school. I don't, re- I don't really think I learned anything in school. Like, I don't yeah. really, I, I, I went to about 10 different schools. Like, I had really, I really didn't get on well in school. But um, for me, I just picked it up, like, in other ways, like I grew up, so I spent the first like four years of my life in the States. And um, I don't know, like, it's not like my mum's a real nationalist. My mum's in the audience as well, so be careful what I say. <laughs> it's not like she's real nationalistic or anything, but I was just really brought up like on rebel songs. Like I learned yeah. all of these, like I just learned like loads of, like, who was it? Like, like Christy Moore, like Planksy, the Dubliners. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, so I just learned like all of these songs, like the like James Connolly, the Christy Moore sings. I know other people sing it as well, but that's the version that I know. So, 
just like this imagery in my head from like a young age, like they shot him down on a bright May morning. And I'm just like, oh God, like those bastards, like when, when he, couldn't, he couldn't walk because he was injured from the rising and they, he had to be carried in and they shot him anyway. And I had all of this imagery in my mind from music. Like I really think like the power of music um, to influence people is just absolutely huge. So kind of beyond um, what I was learning in school, it was kind of in my DNA, just from yeah. the stuff that was around me. In terms of what I know about Africa, that's very specifically, to be fair, I learned it in England, but I had a very unusual experience because I went to the School of Oriental and African Studies yeah. and I did African Studies. So that's why I know all of this stuff. Like, it's not common knowledge in England at all. Um, yeah. what, what, what the English, what Britain or England did in Africa. It's just not known. And the little bit that is known is presented as still something that's beneficial. There was a poll done recently and it showed, I can't remember off the top of my head what the percentage was, but something like 70% of British people are proud of colonialism. So they don't actually see but it. But like they don't know, are you saying they don't know what it is properly? They don't know what it is. Yeah. They think it's like, they think it was kind of spreading the light of like civilization and commerce and Christianity to the dark continent. Like the Yanks and democracy. <laughs> well, there you go. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And people, people be like to me, oh, um, so, oh, yeah, like, where are you, we're like, where are you from? And, uh, yeah, my dad's like Nigerian. Oh, like, how, like, how do, how do you talk to him? How do you talk to your grandparents? Like, what language do you use? Oh, we use English. Oh, why do they speak English in Nigeria? I'm like, you, you, you you's invented Nigeria. Like, you gave it that name. Like, English is its official language. Like, they didn't just wake up one morning and decide, oh, we're going to speak in English. Like, yeah. This is like, and we won't be able to watch TV. We better start <laughs> learning this English. So, yeah, the people just don't know. Um, and are often angry when, when confronted with the truth as well. And how, how old is your young fella? He's six. So what happens when he starts coming home with history books in about five years? You're going to start getting angry at the books? Well, I think, like myself, like, he's already got, like, a firm, like, a firm foundation in kind of, like, radical politics. Okay. Like, Ooh. the other day, he came, he came home from school, like, in his English school, he came home from school with a, a big, detailed picture of Kilmainham Jail. Brilliant. And, um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, what, what, do you think that... Uh, We'll say the, the Irish history of oppression give, gives us an opportunity to potentially be better than other countries when it comes to immigrants. I now, it doesn't appear to be happening, but do you think it's... Uh, I think the potential is undoubtedly there. Yeah. Um, it, it, it would be... I really want to see that potential like come good on. Because yeah. it, it really could go another way as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I guess it's all kind of in the balance now. It's all it's all unfolding. Um, I do notice, though, a, like a, a big difference between here and the UK is um, when I've written stuff about um, kind of race, racism, colonialism in Britain, there'll be loads of support, but there'll also be um, like a really big backlash from a lot of like really, really, really angry white men. It's mm -hmm. nearly always white men. Um, 
and they're just like they're raging it's like i've read like it's just it's really like gotten to like the heart of like what they believe to be true and right and something kind of deeply embedded in their identity whereas in ireland writing similar stuff the backlash isn't the same and i think it's because like irish identity isn't so built around this idea of it just it isn't built around this idea of imperialism and empire and irish people actually yeah like have that kind of shit that shared history of colonization um so the identity is very is very different and is less defensive when talking about when talking about some of this stuff um what i try and like i've got buddies now and the We'll say the word, the phrase cultural appropriation mm-hmm. is enough for them to, they'll roll their eyes and they'll go, oh, for fuck's sake, shut up. Yeah. And what I try and do is I remind them, if someone called Brian McFadden English on Sky News, we'd be <laughs> d- digging up the back garden looking for Semtex from 1989. And what I say to them is that, you know, they'll, get, they'll hear a cultural appropriation and they'll go, oh, they're triggered again. And then they're screaming at the television when an Irish sports star is called British. And I'm going, that's the same fucking shit. And one of them is way more important. And I try and use that to get them to, like, if you can understand why it's insulting, because that's all colonialism, why can't you then take that and go, this person who is saying cultural appropriation, just believe them, because it's not far off. Yeah, so, ooh, it, like, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated one in that I actually, I understand... You do think Brian McFadden is British. <laughs> Is he not? <laughs> I don't know. Poor old Brian McFadden. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He's not even low back in the Westlife. I shouldn't have picked on him. I did not expect to be discussing Brian McFadden. But there you go. Um, so, yeah, like, I actually do understand people's, frust- I do understand people's frustration to an extent in, in, in that you'd be like, God, this, this is kind of, there's so many serious things in the world. Like, why is this getting so much attention? Why is this getting so many column inches? And sometimes I do think that. I'm like, well, I'd actually rather talk about something else as well. I've kind of said what I want to say about cultural appropriation, but I have a chapter in the book that is looking at cultural appropriation. I advance a new definition of cultural appropriation because I think people are using the term, they're using the term to describe lots of things that are annoying and wrong, but that I wouldn't actually say are cultural appropriation. So for me, with cultural appropriation, like, I don't really talk about the cultural appropriation of um, non-black cultures, like yeah. when it comes to cultural appropriation of Chinese culture, Indian culture, not my area of expertise. Like, I don't know, I don't stray into that. Um, but specifically with black culture, you have to know the, con- the relationship between black people and white people is not just a neutral, everything's kind of cute and equal relationship. As I said, the idea of black people is something that was constructed yeah. to oppress and, and rob and extract their resources, okay? So for the past 500 years, the resources of West and Central Africa and people from West and Central Africa, stolen in their millions and taken to the Americas, their resources have been stolen, extracted, Mm -hmm. appropriated to enrich the West. There's all this labor and all of these material, cultural, spiritual resources that have not been that have been used to um, consolidate wealth um, in, West, in many Western nations. And none of that has been even properly acknowledged, let, let alone have, has anyone been remunerated or is there anything even approaching like reparations. So in that context, 
to also see your cultural production. And if you look at black Americans, it's cultural production that they have, that has, that has developed in spite, like in the crucible yeah. of white supremacy, like in the face of like what is happening to them there. They've created this like beautiful culture that, the, that everybody in the yeah. world wants a piece of, everybody in the world wants to claim, while still de denigrating African-American culture yeah. as being criminal, as being, as being backwards, as being thuggish, as being this, that, and the other. But their culture is like, com like constantly like repackaged and presented as American yeah. and white American. And so many people benefit from that financial, in, in untold ways, very rarely black Americans. So in that context, it is, yeah, it's infuriating. It's infuriating yeah. to see. And if you think about it specifically in hair, if you see, it's getting, it's changing a little bit now, but certainly up until five or six years ago, if I had a hairstyle like the one Colessi, which is just the, the, the typical cane rose the way people would treat me would be like very very different i've been accused of shoplifting yeah uh, like trailed around stores i've had people say oh god em it's funny how thuggish you can look like so easily mm -hmm. um <laughs> uh all this kind of stuff and then like you kylie oh, what's her name i don't even want to say those women's names that, <laughs> that family then they're doing and it. it's like oh it's so bold it's so edgy this is like high fashion like this is this is something. This is something to be celebrated and to be praised. It's the same hairstyles that black people are penalised and criminalised for having. My blood's kind of boiling now. Um, so yeah, no, it's a re it's, it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. So we were frantically trying to not talk about shit we should be talking on stage. Yeah. Backstage, which is a terrible thing about intervals. Um. Tell me about Afrofuturism, please. Oh, because, it, because it's one of those things that's on my list of things to learn about. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. Okay. Uh, could, do you want to ask me a more specific question? About do you know what? No, because <laughs> <laughs> I just know. Uh, here's all I know about Afrofuturism. This uh -huh. is all I know. Are you familiar with the band Parliament Funkadelic? Like, so my, that's my only context for it, is, okay. is the way that Parliament and Funkadelic used to explore themes of space. Mm -hmm. which I always thought was, like, Parliament Funkadelic started in the late 60s, early 70s, when the space race was happening, mm -hmm. and it was their way of going, well, they're definitely not putting a black man on the moon soon, so we can have a spaceship on stage, maybe. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Is that Afrofuturism? Um, that is absolutely, like, a part of Afrofuturism, 100%. So, like, as a term, it is relatively recent, and it was actually, the term Afrofuturism was coined by like a white academic called Mark Derry in, don't hold me to this, but like the early 90s, the late 80s, I think the early 90s, so relatively recently. But I wonder, I don't know how familiar people are with the term, um, but it is something that I argue, um, while we've just named it relatively recently, is something that has like very ancient antecedents um, and is something that um, really harks back to African concepts of time. And again, I don't want to talk about Africa in this like generalized way. Yeah. So I will use maybe Yoruba as an example, but a lot of what I'm saying is generalizable to like other cultures as well. So obviously like um, Afrofuturism is something that we see in popular culture now. We see it in art, we see it in music. 
Um, and there can be quite like a kind of superficial engagement with it. Oh, yeah, it's like black people in futuristic clothing yeah, yeah. with some Egyptian iconography and maybe doing something that's like a little bit out there. That's my understanding of Afrofuturism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that is, that, that is like that is it that is part of it but um because my background like my academic background is in african studies i'm always like i'm just always fascinated by how these manifestations of popular culture like what they kind of like link to in the pre-colonial cultures so the first thing that you have to think about is time and afrofuturism isn't something that is um only concerned with the future it's also very much like engaged with the past And when I say that, it's um, this is kind of deep, but okay. So in Western civilization and Western society, time is imagined because obviously time is a construct. Like how we engage with time um, is to many degrees like a construct. Right? Yeah. So in this part of the world where we have, or in the West, let's say, where there's like Judeo-Christian reality. We imagine time as operating in this linear way where there's just like a beginning, a middle and an end. And we see that even played out in like our lives. Like we think we live a life and then we die. And based on your beliefs, maybe you go to heaven, like maybe there's an mm -hmm. afterlife, but you basically live and you die and that's it. It's quite final. In Yoruba culture, and this is generalizable to lots of African cultures, um, there's a very different, this is traditionally, obviously lots of people have converted to Christianity and Islam, but in the traditional cultures, there's a very different engagement with time. So time is actually understood as being like cyclical, so it repeats itself rather than it just kind of goes in this linear way and starts and finishes. And this is like borne out and manifest through the spiritual belief systems. So most African um, spiritual belief systems uh, really centralize the idea of ancestral spirits so in this part of the world we have an idea that there's ghosts and like they're bad yeah. and they're scary and we want to like stay away from them um definitely we, ha we have like <laughs> we have exorcisms the idea of being possessed is like terrifying within like the christian church the catholic church very very different in africa so ancestral spirits are seen as being they're just So there's kind of three tiers of, of, of humanity. So there's the unborn, um, but they already exist. They just haven't been born yet. Then there's like us, and then there's the ancestral spirits. And they kind of operate in a cycle of like perpetual like rebirth. So for instance, in Yoruba culture, you'll see um, a really popular name is like Babatunde for a boy and Yetunde for a girl. The reason for this is, Yetunde is mother comes again, Babatunde is father comes again. So if a child is born just after a grandparent, a grandfather has died and it's a boy, he might be called Babatunde. And they, there's this idea that the grandfather is born again in the son. Um, Yetunde, the grandmother, is born again in the granddaughter. Um, so, tie, so ancestral spirits, all the ceremonies try and, and rituals and the drumming try and communicate with the ancestral spirits. And there's a pantheon of these kind of saints called the Orisha who operate as humans. There's the Orisha and there's Eludamara who's like the supreme being. You bring about these states of trance through drumming and through music and dancing where the Orisha possess or mount you. Um, so you actually want to bring about possession and you want to be in communication with your ancestral spirits. And they're not seen as sinister or scary, but they're actually seen as providing like guidance and help and advice and support. So with Afrofuturism, um, that kind of different engagement with time, that's why there's a chapter in the book that's called Ancient Futures. Mm -hmm. So there's the idea of like, 
the distinctions between past, present, and future not being as solid as they're, as they're seen in kind of like Western European culture, but far more porous and far more in like communication with each other if that makes sense. So that's the time thing that's happening in Afrofuturism. Um, so yeah, I just want to make that distinction that it also kind of harks back a long, long time ago. It's not, it's not just wholly futuristic. Um, what else happens? Okay, so it's, a, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting field um, for me because, and I, th I think for, for, for black people to explore because it's one of those spaces, as I was talking earlier, about constructions of blackness yeah. and all those like narrow stereotypes that black people are kind of imagined to conform to. Afrofuturism kind of offers this space where you can kind of engage with like the metaphysical and kind of esoteric practices and you can imagine yourself like as otherworldly and you've got someone like Sun Ra who's like a really mm -hmm. like kind of key figure in Afrofuturism, even though he predates the term. Yeah. Um, but he sees, if you, if you watch Space is the Place, it's all about like black people leaving like the ghettos of America and like starting this new colony in space whereby everything is based on humane principles, mm -hmm. um, where um, uh, it, it's, just, it's, just, it, it's just like taking black people out of the kind of, the, the recent history, a liberation from the recent history, and it's like a space to negotiate just all of these ideas of the ideas of the imagination, and just yeah, a more exciting space to think about blackness. Um, when you describe that, like that view of time, right? Mm -hmm. To me, that sounds mad, right? <laughs> it does because it's so different to what I've learned. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And it makes me think about. I read this amazing article recently. I speak a lot of, on my podcast about cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Mm -hmm. And there was this article that was written by, you follow her on Twitter, I can't remember her fucking name because I, I don't think I pronounce it, but it's, she's a, a black psychologist and she wrote a critique of CBT saying that, oh. we'll say, the NHS system, that, that will roll out cognitive behavioral therapy, this evidence-based therapy, but for somebody who could be a, an African immigrant, it might be completely useless mm -hmm. because CBT is, is founded in these principles of rationalism that go back to Western ways of thinking. And this will ultimately fail someone who comes from a culture where this stuff doesn't, you know, they could have that concept of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, like, how, how does, like, that's a real impact on someone's mental health. If they come from a, like, how do you feel about that? Or is that something you're looking into? Or? That's not something that I would really feel like qualified to talk about. But it's making me think like a long time ago when I did. See, my that's the problem when you get a fucking academic. <laughs> you'll, you'll only talk about what you know about and no hot takes. <laughs> no, I'm definitely like willing to like speculate on stuff that I probably speculate shouldn't. Speculate to fuck, it's grand. I have a plastic bag in my head. No one's going to take it seriously. <laughs> Um, it's, it, is, it is making me think about um, when I was doing my master's and I wrote um, my dissertation on uh, child soldiers in Sierra Leone, mm -hmm. how they were reintegra reintegrated back into civilian society. And um, I looked a little bit at how um, typical kind of like Western um, therapy was actually like failing um, some of these young people who had witnessed and participated in like kind of unimaginable yeah. horrors um, 
But one of this is this, and this was based on anecdotal research I did rather than like empirical research. Let me put that out there. It's like grand. It's We're doing hot takes here. It's fine. <laughs> I have to qualify myself like this. Anyway, um, so there was the idea that um, oh, so yeah, what I heard was that when. Some of the people were reintegrated back into the community via um, traditional rituals that, um, that through which they're born through which they're born again. That actually worked, and they could actually like draw a line between what they had done, um, what they had done before the ritual, um, and the subsequent person that they were, and they could actually kind of reintegrate back into their communities. And I remember um, at the time I was like interning at like a child um, at, a, at a charity that worked with child soldiers, and of course everybody that worked there was like a middle class white person. I was the only person of African descent, and I remember talking about this failure of kind of like this often failure of like traditional therapy and how some of these rituals were like perhaps worth looking at or at least acknowledging and being really met like kind of in no uncertain terms with like this is absolutely disgraceful that you're even suggesting this like you're basically yeah. saying that they, they just deserve mumbo jumbo and that they they shouldn't they shouldn't have access to like the real and proper like white western way um and i remember just that attitude being like yeah just i mean it's, a, it's an attitude i have encountered a lot but be this is maybe one of the first times and being really like just uh yeah i just i, just, I was just like wow your lack of ability to even like engage with these things like you really just see them as entirely worthless but yeah, it's we take for granted, I think, we trace our idea of evidence and rationality. You can trace it back to one point in Western history, mm-hmm. and there's other cultures that have a completely different, but we, it's not to be rubbish, like... Yeah, absolutely, and like I, like a lot of it goes back to like Cartesianism and like Descartes yeah. and that, that, that binary kind of division of the world, and that has created like so many, so many problems that we're still, like in this part of the world, we're still grappling with and contesting and actually trying to imagine um, society and life beyond those binaries because it's really difficult to try and like cram all the crazy like complexity of life into that kind of, into into that binary world imagined by uh, Cartesianism. Um, Cartesianism. I've got a question here. It might be from a shit lord. (laughs) (laughs) Does Emma find racial discourse online to be American-centric? Are you getting a hot ear again? I, the ear is not em, hot. Emma had a, a sudden, <laughs> sudden hot ear backstage. I had an attack backstage. Unexplained attack of hot ear. And she was worried that it would spread. <laughs> um, I had a roaring red ear. It was quite mad. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do, you, do you find that the racial discourse online to be American-centric? Is there a difference between white Americans uh, using... A-A-V-E, African-American vernacular, I assume, compared to white Irish people using African black British slang. I think what that person's talking about is when, like, sometimes Irish people, it's often a sign of virtue signaling. If they're saying something very left, they'll say, y'all. And it's like, come on now, you grew up beside a ditch. (laughs) Will you say ye to fuck? Because it doesn't affect the message. You're just looking for some retweets from Yanks. <laughs> but 
I think I that's. To, I tried to bring ye back though, and I there's was nothing like, wrong with ye. No, but like, uh, not that it's gone. Y'all is in Corklets. <laughs> not that it's gone, but obviously, like, I'm living in England, and I was just like, oh god, it really frustrates me that I can use all of this American language, and you all know what I'm talking about. But I use or like, yes, yeah, exactly. But I use like Irish language, like I, like Irish English, and nobody has a fucking clue, and like we're we're just across the fucking pond from each other. Like so that actually really, really that that really frustrates me. And yeah, I think um there there is a really American American-centric um, kind of emphasis. And I think we should challenge it rather than just... Like, it's not the same situation. It's not the same history. Um, I, I would be a big advocate for actually, like, developing kind of, like, Irish responses to stuff just because we have a totally different kind of culture as well. Absolutely, And yeah. a lot of, like, the self-help kind of language that operates in a lot of activist space spaces has self self helpy kind of sounding language i think to me is very american and it doesn't really like it doesn't really like even sit that well with me like i'd rather something more yeah i don't know more rec- more culturally recognizable as irish absolutely um is mr beery aware of the recent resurgence of interest in Niger- nigerian disco boogie from the 70s and 80s and if so <laughs> what are some of her go-to jams Um, so I think he's probably talking about people like William Onni. Oh, William Anabayor. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, why people love him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, like, he's definitely been championed by, like, kind of, like, white, like, crate diggers and, like, mu- musos kind of... He- <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of it, but that's... There's, there's a lot of music coming out of Nigeria now that like young Nigerian and black people are listening to and I'd listen to like a lot more of that than I would to that kind of thing. What, what is it with white people liking black music that black people don't like anymore? <laughs> What's that about? Okay, I, I actually love that question. Um, so like black cultural production is like often, like it's incredibly like, syncretic and I think the reason that so many like black diaspora uh, genres of music have this like global appeal and like everybody like everybody's into them is because like there's just there's so much there's so much innovation and there's so much like fusing together of like whatever new influences people are coming into contact with they're putting all that together and they're making something new and I think there's an imperative like in like uh, white cultures, if I can use that term, for more of an idea of like purity okay. and being like, oh, we have to like do this. Like, I don't, I don't, the same dynamism and innovation just doesn't like immediacy just doesn't like seem to be there. And this is something that is as old as like as old as the history of America. I just finished like uh, Billie Holiday's uh, mm-hmm. autobiography, which has just been republished. And I would urge everyone to read. It's fucking amazing. Lady Sings the Blues. Um, and she is in the 1920s talking about exactly the same thing. She's like, you go uptown and all these white guys are like, yeah, swing. And she's just like up in Harlem, like you could have heard swing 20 years ago. They've actually moved on to some next thing. You're just now like kind of copping onto it now and acting like it's this breaking, it's just a new thing. So it's usually like 10 years after something has stopped being relevant to black audiences, Mm white people will get into it. (laughs) It's a thing. Look. If you see a fucking argument online, like if people are arguing for, oh, oh I don't like this, I like old school hip hop. Exactly. It's exactly. always a white lad, like. Exactly. It's, it's, so, it's so true. And um, what, another thing I want to say about that is, like, also, it's like the thing, 
when the new black thing is coming out, it will nine times out of ten be dismissed as oh, cheesy. Absolutely. It's always like, oh, looking down your Mumble rap. Or nine, exactly. Like mumble rap. Like that, 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 that's what a shitty term. What a shitty term. And I just feel like with trap, there's so much resonance between trap and the blues. Like absolutely. trap is like the modern incarnation of the blues. It's the same kind of themes. It's the same kind of people, same socioeconomic background. Um, it, but yet, because the blues is old, it's held in this like high esteem and trap is dismissed as trash. Do you want to hear my hot take on trap music? Yeah. <laughs> um, so trap, like, it, it, what distinguishes it is that really, really distorted bass, right? Uh-huh. And it comes from Atlanta and, no, my, Miami first from Miami bass and then up to Atlanta. It's from, there was lads in the 90s who used to get the license plates on their cars, right? And they would deliberately loosen the license plate so that when the bass was playing in the car, it would make this kind of shitty noise. And the trap bass comes from that, loosening license plates on a car with a loud bass. Yeah. Hang on. Look, I just, I hope the answer is, it didn't arrive to me in a dream. But (laughs) I I either read it somewhere, I had a drunken conversation with someone somewhere, but it arrived in my head. And I, I think it's true. I'm usually right with this shit. I'm usually right. I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. I'll, I'll look into it further. E-art. So I'm going to cut the interview short there. We spoke for about another hour. There was audience questions, all that carry on. But just in, in the interest of brevity, I'll keep it to about an hour. It was an absolute pleasure. Best of luck to Emma. Go out and get that book, Don't Touch My Hair. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, and I'll see you next week. All right. Look after yourselves. Enjoy the weather. Be nice to yourself. Be nice to your neighbours. Everything will be grand. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 